Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 136, and today we'll be chatting with Mike Singleton, the co-founder of Iterate, a product that helps you get the feedback you need to build better products and make better decisions. Mike started off his career as a developer working for a small startup in New York before joining the early stage team at Foursquare. He later became the VP of engineering and helped build the team that was focused on the web services part of the platform. After several years with Foursquare, Mike's back at it with a startup of his own called Iterate. Mike and his co-founder decided to create Iterate after seeing a real need for smart tools that could help smaller teams get dynamic product feedback to help them grow. Mike joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like being one of the first employees and later the VP of engineering at Foursquare, how he approaches growing technical teams, what motivated him to launch Iterate, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hacktostart, drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Tyler and I are really excited uh, to have you on the show and to get to learn more about you, know, you your story, and, and what you're currently working on. But before we dive into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I studied at the Rochester Institute of Technology, which is a huge mouthful, uh, in Rochester, New York. I studied computer science there and then moved to New York City after that, and I've been living here ever since. That's awesome. So where did your passion for technology and entrepreneurship come from for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I don't I don't think I like dressed up as an entrepreneur for Halloween or anything as a kid. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think it was a, a predestined thing by any means. As, as far as technology goes, um, I mean, my dad was an incredibly technology savvy person. He was a network engineer in Columbus. He set up, I'm pretty sure he set up the first gigabit Ethernet connection in the state of Ohio, if I remember the lore correctly, at least. And so it was pretty much just surrounded by technology all growing up. Um, so that, that kind of was a clear path for me from day one. And as far as entrepreneurship goes, I, I certainly don't, don't, like I said, I don't think that that was uh, something from day one. It just sort of evolved. And I had a passion for startups. Um, I think that's certainly something that I wanted to be involved with from really early in my career. And I think it just sort of flowed, flowed naturally that I started as, a, as an engineer and you know, worked my way up and then eventually realized that the next step for me was to start my own business. And, and here I am. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you, you know, start that career in, in technology or, or with startups? What were some of the first few jobs you, you know, you got out of school? Yeah, one of the, like the best things about RIT's computer science program is they require you to take four quarters worth of internships in order to graduate. So it's actually a five-year program. So those four internships were a fantastic opportunity to explore really different types of businesses. The first one that I worked at was just the tiniest company in Columbus. It was called The Drop Spot. Uh, and it was about 10 people or so. And they were effectively uh, reselling used electronics on eBay was ultimately what the business was. 
it was I was part of a two person team <laughs> running the the website, which was great. So I did that for the first one. Second internship was in Madison, Wisconsin, at a video game company called Raven Software. Um, I actually was there working on the AI for a bunch of the the people in the latest Wolfenstein game. If you've ever played any of those, if you saw one of the German soldiers smoking a cigarette and walking around the streets, that was probably programmed by me. No way. Uh, and so that that was a blast. And then the third one, I did an internship at Google uh, in 2007. The interesting part about that at the end was, you know, I realized when I graduated, I looked back at those three experiences and, and ultimately liked the one at the 10 person company the most, even more than my experience at Google. And so that that definitely set me out on the right track that I want to be working at startups and I want to be be working with a really, really small and close team from the get go. So that transition largely happened when I decided to move to New York City and I talked to one of my contacts at Google that I had met from the internship and asked him if he knew anybody involved in startups in New York City. And he introduced me to a guy named Sam Lesson, who is a serial entrepreneur himself, incredibly smart guy. He went on to be a product manager at Facebook and worked on the big redesign of the timeline. And he's just he's done amazing things, but was introduced to him who was running a company at the time called Dropio, drop.io which was a private file sharing service, which was later acquired by Facebook. So that's ultimately how I got my start was a contact from an internship at Google introduced me to Sam in New York City. That's awesome. So so when you got into New York City, some time had passed and you ended up joining the team at Foursquare. Can you tell us a bit more how you created the opportunity to join the team there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that I'm pretty open <laughs> about admitting is that I am a terrible interviewer when it comes to to sort of the stereotypical tech interviews that existed in the you know last five to ten years or so. I'm just I get so nervous when I'm doing whiteboard coding that just completely fall apart. And so even at Dropio, I remember I went to New York City. I did the interview. Uh, I was back at RIT waiting to get the call, and uh, Sam called and he said, "Hey, sorry, it's it's a no." Uh, he talked to the team, et cetera, and they were like, "Hey, we just don't have enough confidence." And I remember hanging up the phone, just being incredibly sad, depressed about it. And then, you know, I was frustrated because I felt like I know I can do this job well. I may not have come off great in the interview, and that's definitely a weakness, but I knew I could do the job well. So I called him back about five minutes later and explained to him how big of a mistake he was making. And he called me back a little bit later and said, you've got the job. Uh, so that's that's the story of how I got to drop you. And when I was there, I met a guy named Chad Stoller, who was friends with Naveen, the co-founder of Foursquare. And when I was getting ready to leave, he said, hey, well, let me introduce you to the team. So I got to know them through Chad, a mutual friend. And the same thing happened. I went and did the interview and it did not go great. It wasn't horrible, but they definitely came back with like, we're kind of on the fence. And I think it took a lot of convincing ultimately to make that happen. Because at the time, the team was only three people during the interview there. By the time I joined, I joined as the fifth employee, uh, and that's back in 2009. So ultimately, I think the line of reasoning there is that connections and getting to know people has been hugely helpful in creating those opportunities. And I think it was good, at least early on, that I was able to recognize that interviewing might not be my strongest suit and that it, it probably takes a little bit of extracurricular activity to make some of this stuff happen. So you mentioned you were the fifth employee at Foursquare. What were some of the projects you had the chance to contribute to over that time? Yeah, I mean, I was there for six, over six years. Um, so when I joined in 2009, you know, Foursquare was only available in, I think, five cities at the time. 
and the website was a nascent, you know, small website at the time. So we're pretty much working on everything uh, from that point and beyond. When I first started, because the engineering team was only three people, everyone was responsible for everything for the most part. But my role quickly evolved into managing the website for the first couple of years. And we we hired up a team. The team that worked on the web ultimately was about, I think, eight to 10 people at peak. And we scaled the site from, I think it was about 10,000 hits a month up to about 50 million a month by the time I left. And so pretty much everything on the website was the team that I worked with. And then after the first few years, I eventually was promoted into the VP of engineering role, where at this time, this was after Foursquare sort of notoriously had split it's one app into two separate apps, Foursquare and Swarm. And so my responsibility was largely in managing the, the engineering team focusing on that consumer Foursquare app and worked on just, you know, six years worth of products at the pace that we were shipping at is, is a blur. So I probably could talk for two hours of the features we worked on. But, yeah. uh, you know, most things I'd say I had some level of involvement in during those years. That's really cool. So how did you approach building the technical team there? It's a good question. And at the time, like things have changed a lot. I mean, even alluding to even the way interviews are done have changed dramatically. But I think Foursquare, one, being in New York City is different. You know, it's not the Bay Area. And that's that's a good thing and a bad thing. At the time, the pool of candidates was certainly a lot smaller than it was in San Francisco. And this was actually one of the reasons why Foursquare opened up an office in San Francisco was to help with recruiting at the time. But the good part was there weren't that many hallmark startups in New York. So of the high quality candidates, there were only, you know, four or five, maybe six companies that were really competing for them at the time in those early days. You know, Facebook and a whole bunch of companies hadn't even opened very big offices at all in New York. So they they weren't quite here yet. So I think we got the uh, first mover advantage, I'd say, in, in the startup scene in being involved so early that we had really high quality candidates and Harry Heyman, who's the head of engineering right at the beginning from the get-go, had just incredibly high standards and made some really smart technical decisions like using Scala as our language, which also sort of drove a certain type of engineer to want to work at Foursquare. We were very blessed, I'd say, with high-quality candidates coming through. The technology that we chose was, like I said, Scala for the language. The website, ultimately, we rolled our own framework. And so what we found is we weren't in a position to be hiring people that were experts in Scala in 2009 because there weren't experts in Scala. There was uh, LinkedIn was using it at the time, and I think that's about it. So it forced us to have to focus on hiring generalists, which I think for us was a hugely successful thing. And I think that is still a, a very popular opinion in hiring is to not really focus so much on exactly which framework this person knows, but making sure that they really understand fundamental first principles, computer science, and they can pick up any language or any framework in a matter of time. And in the grand scheme of someone's career at a company, that learning curve is actually just a a blip on the radar and is not that significant. So really, we focused on generalists and we hired as as fast as we could. The engineering team in the first few years ballooned up to like, I think, 80-ish people. So we we were hiring constantly for the most part. And how do you keep uh, like a cohesive culture, I guess, around having those high standards and moving quickly and doing all, you know, the startupy things uh, from, from more of an engineering perspective, I guess? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's evolving. And I think the, the culture issues are definitely tough. And especially as a team is growing so much that it just takes a lot of effort to talk as an engineering team about what you want your culture to look like. It's not something that can really evolve top down. Like it, it needs to be 
be a bottom up thing. And so we had a really strong group, like the first 10 or 20 people, I feel like formed an incredibly close knit family that sort of grew over time. And we never really hit the point for those first few years where everybody knew everybody. And there was plenty of social events that were going on to make sure that if you didn't, you had the opportunity to get to know them. And so I, I'd largely credit paying attention to that stuff right from the get-go. And I'd largely credit uh, Dennis Crowley, the CEO and founder. I mean, the culture and personality of a company is a direct reflection of the founder. And he's just one of the smartest, kindest people that I've worked with. And that's it's an intoxicating type of culture where it's just a fun place to be. And I think even now there's we have groups of X Foursquare people that are still talking today. And, and I think everybody still looks at their time at Foursquare incredibly fondly and, and would back up how great it was to work there. I don't know if there's a German word for being nostalgic in the moment, but that's certainly, I think, how everyone felt that was there, uh, especially in the early years. And I mean, it still feels that way, I'm sure, for the current employees. But at the time, just knowing like, wow, you're working on a special product with a special team at a, in a special place. And everyone, I think, kind of felt aware of that. So it's it, it's a thing that I don't even know if, if I'll experience something like that again. Yeah, for sure. And well, I mean, speaking of special teams uh, and, and doing cool things today, you're the co-founder of, of a new company called Iterate, uh, you know, one that you wanted to start, like you, like you mentioned earlier. So can you tell us a bit more about Iterate and what really motivated you to launch it? So at, at the end of the day, the goal for Iterate is we want to help companies build better products. That's, that's our goal. And this really started um, my co-founder, Matt Healy, and I. We were talking about the product development process at Foursquare and otherwise. And I remember specifically, we were talking to a bunch of our friends that worked at other companies, and we were asking them, hey, how are you guys getting feedback about your product? And pretty universally, we heard the same two things. One, by far, the most popular answer, at least with people who were friends of ours, uh, was we're not doing anything. And I I think realistically, that's the answer for most people, whether it's a small startup or a medium-sized business, is that getting feedback from customers is incredibly hard. It's it's hard to talk to your users. And so most people just do it by whatever support requests they get or whatever emails they get from people or simply talking to friends and family. Um, So that's door number one is sort of just naturally having the feedback come in. And the second thing was if you had a user research team. And at Foursquare, we were blessed to have an amazing user research team. But the reality is there's a huge gap when you're building a company between not getting any structured feedback on your product when you need it the most and being able to hire full-time user researchers. That's, that's a huge gap. So we identified like an opportunity to create a really approachable system for people to get feedback on their product and ultimately help them build better products. So iterate at its fundamental level is a survey tool. That is the way that we actually get the feedback. And the idea is to make it simple to get structured feedback at scale. So whether you just have 50 people in a beta test or you have a million users, we want to make it as simple as possible for you to get that structured feedback. Um, so that's that's kind of the the origin of the story. But we're, we're a few months away from launch right now. So we're really just early days in this goal. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. So how did you approach building the first version of the product? Yeah, I think the the first version, I mean, when you think about, there's two unique things that we're trying to do when it comes to surveys, because there's a million survey tools out there. And our goal was absolutely not to create a general survey tool that can be used for anything under the sun. There are already existing tools for that. Our goal, like I said, was specifically to help companies get feedback about their products. And so 
we sort of asked ourselves, why is it that you're not using, that we didn't and other companies aren't already using existing survey tools to do that? And the answer is that it's a bit of a pain right now. Like if you guys were to try to go run a survey to hear more of what people think about your podcast, step one, go sign up for our survey tool. Step two, export a list of email addresses from wherever those email addresses live, import them into the survey, make the survey, probably use another tool like MailChimp or something to send an email out to everybody with a link to the survey. Hopefully, God willing, people respond to it. It's just a pain. And so the reality is there's just enough friction that most people don't do it. So we wanted to come at it from a different angle and try to solve a lot of those problems to make it as frictionless as possible. So the first part was we want to integrate where user data is already living. So a lot of companies are using Mixpanel or Segment. Uh, and so we've made integrations with those tools such that if you want to send a survey, say, to all new users that join seven days after they join, send them this survey. You can configure all of that from within Mixpanel without needing to do any coding at all. So the, the barrier to entry is like zero. And then you also get the power of all of the segmentation you've likely already done. So if you want to send 30 days after someone stops using their product, you want to send them a lapsed user survey. Again, set that up in whatever tool you're already using and it just works. And another thing that we identified is like surveys just don't quite look as good as they should. And I don't know the reasoning for that necessarily, but I feel like the user experience for a lot of them leaves a lot to be desired. Matt Healy, the co-founder, he was a senior designer at Foursquare and is incredibly talented. Um, and so our goal is really to be design-centric and design-first when building these things. So those are sort of two of the, the unique things, and we realize that those need to be in version one. That's, that is what makes us different. That is what makes this product work. And so those things are definitions for our MVP. So when we built the first version, the idea was let's build enough to meet those requirements and nothing else. <laughs> and that definitely leaves you in a position where when we launched, you know, I had my list of 500 pet features that I knew weren't there and felt terrible that they weren't there yet. But, you know, we had enough to meet those goals. So we, we knew it was time a few months ago to, to leave the nest, to launch publicly, get it on product time, get first users using it and get some early feedback, uh, ironically. So, yeah, the goal was just to be really rigid with what was in that initial MVP. Absolutely. It's really cool. And so how did you approach getting some of the first customers, you know, to, to, to use the platform? Yeah, it's mostly two, two tactics. Um, one was obviously doing what we can to, to make as loud of a noise as possible on launch day. So we were on product hunt and did incredibly well. We got a lot of traffic. And even today, months later, we still have traffic coming from Product Hunt. So that's been a really good source just for early testers. But the reality for most of the customers that we're getting is we worked backwards from who is our ideal customer. You know, for us, it is a tech startup that has a product, ideally, that's using one of these tools that we integrate with and needs feedback. And so we worked backwards from there, like, great, let's get a list of startups. Let's filter it down to those uh, that are using these like mix panel and segment. And then we sent emails, we asked for connections, we got on the phone with them. You know, it is like a bootstrap method <laughs> of getting those first customers. But what we knew was the sell, the pitch to them would be very easy because we narrowed it down to such an incredible criteria that we could explain it to them in three minutes and they're going to understand exactly why they want to use it. Um, so that, that's been successful for, our, for us early on is just identify the most niche, perfect, ideal customer possible and go talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool to, to hear and, and, you know, that you guys are having some success with that and hopefully, you know, more amazing things to come. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so. 
Um, so, I mean, besides now being able to skip out on the interviews, what, what's it been like going from VP to co-founder? What have been some of the early challenges that, you know, you've had to overcome as, as a founder? Yeah, it's, it's been a huge transition. Um, you know, at, at Foursquare, too, the, the company had gotten pretty big. It was about 200 people. And then switching from 200 people to two people is a, a big change, I'd say. But I think the biggest challenges so far have, have really been in the increasing breadth of responsibility. You know, like being responsible not only for, for strictly engineering, but also product and BD and sales and operations and figuring out how do you actually run payroll and all of the millions of questions that come in between those things. There's just a lot to do. And it's, it's definitely been the kind of thing where you have to hit the ground running. And uh, it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of work, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And I think the in a VP of engineering role, the highs were high and the lows were low. And I think the biggest difference is that as a co-founder, you still experience those same things, but I think they're even more magnified. <laughs> you know, the, the tiniest little wins, whether it's your first sign-up or your first paying customer or a feature you've wanted launching, it, it's just even more rewarding when it's sort of the thing that you have completely made from scratch. So it's, it's definitely been a huge challenge, but it was certainly exciting to do, especially in these early times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize all the things that you that you know need to get done when when there's no one else to turn to to do them. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I think every day there's about ten new things that end up popping up. And it's it's also interesting, you know, even even in these early like right now we're two people. You know, we're we're looking to grow the team, but being so small, there's simply so much to do that it's it's certainly difficult to identify what what it is that you should be focusing your time on today. And so it's it's tough, but. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been great. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, you mentioned that you guys launched, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, had a successful product hunt, uh, you know, launch. But what's next for you and, you know, I guess, iterate in, in 2017? Yeah, we have a, a really long roadmap. Uh, we sort of did our 2017 planning. And the kind of the question we asked ourselves is, what does this product look like when it's done? You know, I think a lot of people often just assume that you're going to be working on something forever. Um, but I don't necessarily think there's a decade worth of features for a feedback tool. You know, I just I think there is actually a fixed amount of features. So the way we look at it is let's spec out the version of this when it's done. And, and for us, that largely means you have surveys that people can fill out on the web. You have ones that they can embed on their own website. You have a native SDK and you have all of the advanced features you'd expect from a rich enterprise level survey tool. And we list those things out and we work backwards. So the, for the most part, 2017 is going to be just cranking through that list. But it's, it's sort of an exciting frame of mind to be in with a product like this, which is you can look at yourself incrementally improving the product and know, okay, we're 30% to done. And now done doesn't mean we literally walk away from the thing, certainly the opposite, but it's to the point where the product is largely complete, the bones are there, and we know that we have something that people want. And so then it's largely stepping on the gas when it comes to BD and sales all along the way. But it's nice to just chip away and know that you're not just on a treadmill of product development for infinity, that there is an end game in mind and know that you're progressing towards it. So that's, that's what we're looking to do this year. That, that's really cool. So I guess, you know, given all the experience that, that you've been able to to accumulate, um, you know, working at Drop.io, being at Foursquare, then going, you know, now going out on your own and building Iterate, if you could, you know, give yourself, you know, your younger self, I guess, a, a message, you know, what would you tell yourself in terms of career or working at a startup or, or just, you know, becoming a founder, I guess? Yeah, it's a tough question. I, I mean, I think ultimately, 
the advice would be just to take more risks. And I think that risks can mean different things to different people. If you're in your current job and you see an opportunity to take on more responsibility outside of your comfort zone, then I think you should do that a lot sooner than you probably feel ready for. And maybe it's responsibilities, maybe it's seeking a promotion, looking for a different opportunity or starting a new venture. But I think there's speaking for myself, I think I felt a little too risk adverse. And I think things that seemed incredibly scary were probably just not as scary as I thought they were. And that I strive at this point to feel about 50% in it over my head. And if at any point in my career, I, I feel a little too comfortable that my job has gotten easy, then that's probably a pretty clear sign that I need to take another risk. You know, that's some really good advice. So let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, what are some apps that you've downloaded to use lately? scrolling through my list of apps on my home screen right now, it's almost sad that I feel like the rotation hasn't changed too much over the last year or two. And I don't know if that says more about me or the app ecosystem at large, but I think two things that come to mind. One is an email app called Notion. This is a relatively new app that came out about, I think like two months ago or so. But the unique thing it does is it, it uses AI to analyze your emails and prompt you for things that you need to take action on. So specifically what it does is it looks at emails that you send, it can pull out questions that you've asked. And if the person hasn't responded to those questions, it puts them in a list for you to let you know, hey, you asked this question that hasn't been responded to. And it's, I like it, A, because it's useful, but, but B, it's also just an actual practical use of AI. AI is like an incredibly hot topic right now. And I'm sure that you probably can't go anywhere on the internet without seeing some article about a company using AI. But it's hard to find ones that are really meaningfully changed the way you, you do your work. You know, like Google Photos was a really good example of that as well. So Notion has caught my eye. Um, and the other one, which is not an app per se, it's a web app, which is called Figma. And Figma is a new design tool that's currently in beta, where if you've used Sketch at all, it's a very similar tool to Sketch, but it is all uh, hosted. So it, they have a native application, but it's basically just a wrapper for the website. And it's just been mind-blowing to be able to use a tool that lets you do interactive collaboration, leaving comments in line. You can see other people presenting because you're all sharing the same interface. Um, it sort of has that feel of when you went from, you know, like Docs to, or from Microsoft Word to Google Docs, where you're just like, why has this not always been a web app? <laughs> And uh, Figma sort of has a little bit of that magic to it. So we, we've been using that on Iterate, and it's, it's been a success so far. That's awesome. So you guys, you guys have been loving it? Yeah, it's still early. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are some rough edges for sure. But it's one of those things that I just see a lot, a lot of promise in it. And I, I suspect we'll probably be hearing a lot more about it soon. Yeah, no, I'm a I'm a sketch user by day, but I've I've come across uh, Figma and 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 uh, played around with it, and it looks amazing. And I completely agree with you that it definitely feels like going from Google Docs to or not Google Docs, sorry, but just like Word document to to Google Docs. And uh, have you found yourself actually doing like two individuals in a in a Figma document at one time working together? So less in terms of design. I mean, that's obviously like a hard hard thing to do collaboratively. Mm-hmm. But there's been a handful of things in it being a hosted web app that have been great. Um, one, having integrated comments directly in the app so that you can click on something in the interface, leave a comment, respond to it right there. Um, two, we use it for presentations. If we're remote, then being able to just click on a link, see 
the designs and then see people's mouse cursors pointing through as they're narrating over things. And then the other one is just link sharing. Like it's kind of crazy that we're sending around like 50 megabyte files to share designs. And so it's it's just been like fantastic to just have links that you're sharing around. Yeah, no, you, you kind of forget the basics, things that, uh, you know, like file sizing that could cause issues. And like, like you're saying, like just being able to send over a quick link and and, and like that remote working style is uh, Figma definitely is that tool of choice for design. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of people doing amazing things with Sketch. And this, I think we are certainly big Sketch advocates as well. It's just a different model having it hosted on the web. And there's like a whole ecosystem of tools popping up around this stuff. That's just awesome to see. So do you have any um, just like recommendations on great content that you come across lately, either a book, video, or blog post? Yeah, so I'd say, um, can I do a podcast? Is that too, is that uh, self-organizing no to recommend podcasts on a podcast? <laughs> I don't know if that's bad. <laughs> no, no, we support all podcasts. People do it okay, all the time. Great. So it's all great, right. uh, great to call them out. Great. Um, But yeah, I I would basically, not necessarily recommending specific podcasts per se, but one thing I found has been amazing lately is whenever I'm trying to learn a new topic, whether that's, uh, you know, we use Go here, or whether you're doing, you know, Python or React, or uh, even just learning how to build a SaaS business, there's like amazing niche podcasts for every one of those topics. There's one called Go Time that I use and there's one for SaaS businesses called the Startup Chat that I would just basically recommend whatever it is you're learning or whatever it is you're doing, just do a Google search for that plus the word podcast, and I bet you'll find something pretty amazing. Hmm, that's a good approach. I'm looking to dive in a bit deeper with VR and AR. So I could just imagine that there are podcasts uh, on that topic. So that's a good uh, a good pro tip. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the only other recommendation I can think of, um, I recently finished, this is an oldie but a goodie, the book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And I don't know, you've probably heard of this book. It's like a bestseller from years ago, but I finally got around to it. And it's just mind blowing. The premise of the book is effectively explaining to you how poor you are at decision making, basically. And they go through all of these studies that, that they created and conducted themselves. These guys sort of like invented this field. But just unbelievable examples, like two I can think of off the top of my head was one, they show a correlation between parole officers and uh, or, or those that are deciding if someone should get parole and an increase in the likelihood that they grant parole based on how recently they ate a meal and explain that that like the glucose in your your blood ends up making your brain more effective and therefore more likely to think harder about these things, which is just shocking, like the, the impacts of that stuff. And then there's other silly ones, too. Like, I'm sure you've heard of the anchoring price anchoring is a really popular thing where, you know, say a number really high and then that sort of anchors the conversation from there. But they show how the idea of anchoring with numbers affects everything. So they had a a particular study where they had people spin like a wheel of fortune wheel that just had numbers from one to 100 on it. And then after they spun the wheel, they would ask them how many countries are in Africa. And depending on the number that the person had seen, they would answer either higher or lower. So if they saw a number like 90, they were much more likely to just guess a higher number than otherwise, which is just crazy. Wow, that's really interesting. I've heard I've heard a lot of different stories from that book, but I've never actually had a chance to read it. But now uh, you've piqued my curiosity, so yeah, <laughs> have to make the it's time worth to check it. it out. I've had it sitting on the shelf for like three years and finally got around to it. Yeah, it's cool. So, do you have any last thoughts or, or personal models that you know you live by and uh, you think other people should know about? Personal model, like personal models, are tough because it, it's hard not to sound like a nerd 
or, <laughs> or you know, sounding a little overly important. But I think if I had to pig something down that I often at least think about, I don't know if it quite qualifies as, as a motto, but it's the phrase actions express priorities. And I think it's a good heuristic that I, I like to look at how I'm spending my time. And if, if you say that your business is your priority, but you're not really spending that much time working on your business, you're playing video games, maybe it's not your priority. Or if you say that your family is your priority, but you're spending all of your time at work, it's possible that work is your priority. So I like to, to tell myself what the priorities are and what I'm working on, but then just always use time as the gut check and say, if this is a priority, is this actually where I'm spending my time? Awesome. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Mike, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. It was really awesome to have you on the show. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I had a blast. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do it without your awesome support, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next week, and we hope you enjoy the show.